The early 60s had redefined the comic book industry thanks in part to the dawn of the Marvel Age of Comics from Martin Goodman and company. But still waters run deep, and DC played their trump card, the Ace of Bats, Batman the TV series. And that would create almost as much a ruckus as Secret Agents and, of course, the Mersey Beat. And that's where we begin our podcast today. And I am Bill Field, and I am proud to bring you the Comic Historian Podcast. And as usual, I'd like to introduce my co-host, Alex Grand. Hello, Alex. Nice to be here. And Jim Thompson. Jimmy, how are you, buddy? Hi, Bill. Hi, Alex. And we are joined this week with a special guest star, somebody that we were jokingly uh, referring to as Stan Lee's pal, Barry Pearl, the author of four books on Marvel and Stan Lee, and co-author, as it were. Barry, how are you today? Very good. Thank you for inviting me over. Oh, well, it's it's our pleasure and uh, our privilege to have you. So, Jim, you know where we're going with this. What do you think of the pre-66 Marvel? In 1965, Marvel really starts to expand its line, not in terms of number of titles, because that's restricted, but in terms of deepening the field, bringing in characters like the Medusa and then the, the rest of the Inhumans, Hercules, the new Khazar, S.H.I.E.L.D., Hydra, Tales of Asgard, things like that are all coming alive in 65. For me personally, the Avengers changed in lineup in, in issue 16. This is the most exciting hint that Marvel is really going to come alive and do something that we've never seen before. It comes to a culmination, I think, in 1966, but 65 is a, is a key year. One of what I think of as the three greatest Marvel comics ever published is done in 1965, which is Daredevil number 7. The other two were followed in 66 with Spider-Man 33 and This Man, This Monster in 1966 as well. This is really their golden period in that mid-65, 266, and after that as well, obviously. So the other thing in, in 65 is the reprints start coming out. Barry, is it 65 or 64? Well, the reprints for Marvel Tales start coming out yearly in 64, but if you're talking about the monthlies, which are Marvel Collector's Items Classics and Fantasy Masterpieces and Marvel Tales, those come out dated 1966, but actually in the year 1965 at the very end. That's a super important part of the Marvel mythology is building up that that history and recognizing it in a way that no other company had done reprints in that way, had they? No, but you're bringing up very important points. One is it's hard to give a year like TV has seasons. Marvel's one year went into the other. DC did do reprints. But DC's reprints of superheroes generally were those that were 10 or 15 years previous. Marvel is doing reprints of fairly recent and almost current comics. They go back two years, three years. This allows new people who are coming aboard to read the history. I have a friend, uh, Nick Caputo, uh, who is also co-author of the uh, Tashin book, and he was telling me, how he was reading the brand-new Johnny Romita Spider-Mans and following those. At the same time, Marvel Tales is publishing the old Ditko ones. So he got to see both versions at the same time. And that was unique at that time. Uh, you're right about the Avengers. 
the Avengers were really the clone of the Justice League, although in finding out that the Justice League was a big seller, Martin Goodman asked Stanley to do a, a superhero book with the team. But as we know, Avengers took the marquee characters like the Justice League did and put them into their own comic. And then, with the exception of Captain America, he removed them in uh, issue number 16 and added three characters who were previously kind of villains, the Scarlet Witch, uh, Quicksilver, and Hawkeye. None of them would ever get their own titles either, which all the previous Avengers had had their own titles, right, Barry? Well, they had their own series. They didn't always have... Matter of fact... Exactly. uh, Just about all the Avengers were in what we call the anthology comics. Tales of Suspense, Tales to Astonish, Journey into Mystery. They did not quite yet have their own titles. It's important to mention... Uh, actually, two facts here. One is that Martin Goodman said his biggest mistake was giving up his own distribution. What that meant was he had to go to a different distributor. At that time, it was called American Distributors, uh, to bring his comics to the newsstand. That company went out of business, and Goodman had to go to his competitor, National Periodics and Publications, who was a parent company of D.C., and used their distributor, Independent, to bring his comics to the stand, and they limited him to about 16 comics a month. Bi-monthly, right, Barry? 16 bi-monthly. It originally was eight monthly, and then Independent saw that Marvel was growing, and they made money off of it. So they allowed him to grow to 16 per month, but if you look at the summer... When they put out the annuals and stuff, they were doing 20 titles a month. So it was whatever Goodman's relationship was with independent distributors that allowed him to expand a little bit. When did that expansion start? Was that in the mid-1960s then, when they were doing reprints? Okay, the expansion started from 8 to 16, about 1961 uh, to 1962. Stanley said in the bullpen bulletins, the reason why the Avengers lost Thor, Iron Man, Giant Man, etc., is that he didn't like writing uh, continued stories in, let's say, uh, the Thor series, and then have Thor pop up in the Avengers. Like, how did he get there if he's in Asgard at the time? So um, he took those stars out. At the same time, he took the Human Torch out of Strange Tales and put in Nick Fury because he didn't want the Human Torch appearing somewhere else, and not the Fantastic Four. Two characters remained in two comics. Those were Nick Fury, who appeared in the Sergeant Fury War comic, and Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., and Captain America. And sometimes uh, current people forget that soon after Captain America was introduced in Tales of Suspense, they had his adventures take place in World War II. For almost a full year, they were having Captain America and Bucky stories in Tales of Suspense, so there was no conflict with the Avengers stories. Just like with Nick Fury, his stories didn't conflict. No, that's a good point. So the Sergeant Fury stories 
um, were taken in the past, and sounds like those Captain America stories, and that's a good way to showcase both characters. That, I will say, there is that whole description of, you know, who created what and et cetera. That can go on forever. Right. As far as story continuity, that is impressive that Stan did care about that because a lot of writers don't seem to care about that so much these days. And that continuity, I feel, made it a lot a lot more fun for me to try to put all the pieces together as a kid when I was reading this stuff. I also think that something about the Atlas implosion that you mentioned and the hardship there and Joe Manili dying, Matt Baker dying, Steve Ditko, Jack Kirby being available for work, and that stress on that system and them saying, hey, let's just give it a try because at this point we're just, we just want to survive and do something – um, that, that, that pre-1966 and actually pre-1962 environment of trying new things, uh, there was an interesting kernel of uh, creation there among those three guys. And, and that did expand, of course, to the other artists that were part of it peripherally. It, it is an amazing thing. And to see how that all explodes in 1966, it's quite a journey. That's quite an interesting set of years right there. But that brings us to this. Um, that brings us to the fact that there were changes in staff in 66, big changes. Ditko was out. Wood was out. Colin was in. Ramita was in. Basimo was in. They were the new guards. Now, and, of course, we also had Toss, uh, Totes, rather, uh, X-Men tryout and the advent of Roy Thomas. So, fellas, what do you think about that, starting with you, Alex? Wally Wood and Ditko, as far as them leaving, there's, I think, certain accounts of why. But I guess Wally Wood left. He had a better offer from Tower as far as money goes, and he was his own maverick and kind of migrated from place to place a lot around that time after he left Mad Comics. As far as Ditko, evidently, once he was doing the plotting, he wrote in his essay that he wasn't having as much fun doing it without the plotting sessions he used to have with Stan. And there was some issue where Martin Goodman had promised some merchandising money that never panned out. So he left to go to Charlton, and I think that sets a vacuum or a stage for guys like Gene Colan and uh, John Buscema to come in. So when you look at pre- and post-1966 Marvel comics, they look completely different almost. Uh, both awesome to me, but quite different. You know, everyone has their own sense of, I like when Daredevil was done by Wood. I like when Daredevil was done by Colin. I like when Ditko did Spidey. I like when Ramita did Spidey. You know, that's a matter of taste. So like what Barry was saying about Nick Caputo reading Ditko and Ramita at the same time, I think that's a fun way to read the character. Wally Wood is one of my favorite artists, but he did not have the impact on the Marvel age. He only did five Daredevil stories. Uh, Stan Lee has a quote um, saying that he was asked by a lot of his staff members to change the costume. So, uh, And I know that uh, Stan Goldberg colored the costume. If you take a look at the characters um, that Wally Wood drew, including the great uh, Submariner story, he didn't really invent any great characters in there. He took some old ones, I think the e, the eel and the um, beetle and such, uh, and put them into stories. He did not have an impact as the others that you mentioned. Uh, it's very interesting because Steve Ditko uh, says that one of the reasons he left, or the main reason, is he was not talking at all to Stan Lee for the last year of their relationship which started with Spider-Man 25. 
he would come into the office and give the artwork to Saul Brodsky. Roy Thomas quotes that. And I knew Flo Steinberg, and she told me how Ditko would come in and leave his art uh, to the point that Stan Lee actually thought it was being mailed in. He didn't even know that Ditko was bringing it in. They didn't speak. And Stan Lee says uh, in an interview in 1976 that he and Ditko disagreed on everything. Uh, originally, he said they got along great and they agreed on everything. And then they started disagreeing. And so Stan Lee basically said to him what he said to Wally Wood. You plot it out. And you do it, and I'll just write the dialogue. Wally Wood did not like that. Wally Wood did not like what's called the Marvel method, where the artist and the writer agreed on a plot, then the artist drew it, and then the uh, writer, Stan Lee, uh, wrote the dialogue. The only one who liked that was Jack Kirby, right, Barry? And Gene Colan really liked it. I know that for sure. I spoke to Gene. He liked it. Gene's just pure magic, wasn't it? Especially in Daredevil. It was just like, flowed like sand. You see sand blowing across a, a beach, and I'm serious about this. This is something I'm passionate about, is Gene Colan on Daredevil. That was some of the most beautiful, and Alex, we've talked about this, and I know you agree with me. That was some of the most beautiful comic book artwork of all time. Iron Man too. I got to tell you, there oh were... no, his Iron Man stuff was fantastic, and all of his stuff in that era, and of course, in the Tomb of Dracula, which I think he hit his apex in. No question. That I think that if Wally Wood had stayed at Marvel, and he had been given the Submariner strip that they were talking about giving him, that that would have changed the course of. He would have been one of the big three if he had had that regular strip and if he'd stayed with it, because that was going to be the, it's, it's fine that, that, that Colin was, was fine on, on, on Submariner, but I think based upon that Daredevil 7, I think Wally Wood would have taken that and run with it and created a fantasy aspect to the comic that nobody else was actually doing in the same way. Probably would have had a lost world of Atlantis like they had Tales of Asgard. It would have been kind of the same thing where they could have gone backwards because that would have been fantastic. But notice that we're not talking about Wood creating any new characters. He's taking something that was established by others, Bill Everett for the Submariner, and extending that. Uh, About 15 years ago, I had first heard getting onto the web that there were people who were questioning the Marvel method, and they made it sound like it was a torture, like these guys were chained to their desks, and Stan Lee said, do a story on this, do a story on that. Dick Ayers explained to me, because I asked him, I asked Gene Colan, and I asked Johnny Romita about this. Ayers explained that he hated doing a story where he got a script, and there would be, you know, say, Panel one, page one, and he had to make sure he got everything the writer said into that panel. He had no way of expressing himself or drawing what he thought was right. He loved the Marvel method where he got a general plot, and Stanley had bigger plots with him than he had with, let's say, Jack Kirby, or more detailed plot. Dick Ayers loved the idea that he was given a story and he could express it the way he liked and he could pace it. He wasn't married to dialogue that was on a page, and he really enjoyed it. It was not, it's the way he wanted to do it. It was obviously not the way Wally Wood wanted to do it. Joe Kubert never came over to D.C. because he didn't want to do it. 
But Gene Colan also loved it, and he joked himself how he would get most of the plot in, in 19 pages, but he needed three more pages, and it was up to page 20. So he often, at the end, had to cram things in. But he thoroughly enjoyed it. It was not a torture. Ditko liked it, too, at the beginning, but then he found that he was arguing with Stan Lee over plot points. And so Lee would say that you do the whole thing. But there's one other important point, and I did speak to Gene Colan about it, and even a little bit to Dick Ayers, but Colin Buscema and Romita came because in 1966, Marvel was doing well, and they were able to raise their page rates and guarantee them a certain amount of pages per month. We like to think of these people as just artists, but they were businessmen. They were their own contractors and their own agents. And if you read profiles with Johnny Romita and even uh, the Gene Colan one, you will see that they came over when they were offered the money and the pages. Yes, uh, Barry, I, I wanted to bring up a couple of points along the lines that you were talking about. One of the things was it seems like it, with the new blood, the new guard, as, as Bill put it, there's actually two categories. One are the older guard that they hired as employees like Bushima when he came in uh, and Romita, but then there are the ghosts that are coming in at that 65 period, like Gil Kane that does one right. under an alias. Gene right. Colan starts as Austin as an alias because they're on contract with D.C. at the time. Isn't that correct? Well, they weren't on contract with D.C. Each one of these were an independent contractor. They're called freelancers. The contractors mean, and Kirby was a contractor to D.C. in 72, so he could only exclusively work for them. However, if DC found out, the editors at DC found out you worked at Marvel or any other company, they generally fired you, so to speak. In other words, they would not give them any additional work. When you're reading the um, Tales to Astonish Hulk and suddenly there's this Mike Demio, no one has any idea who these people are. Well, yeah, it's kind of funny about that because you had him, you had Adam Austin, which was yes. Gene Colan's name, and it was Scott something or other for Gil Kane. You would think someone would recognize their artistry, but it implies that no one at DC was reading the Marvel comics, and that's probably true. They considered Marvel's art to be terrible. And they called it that. They never quite understood how Marvel took off. Those freelancers were getting additional work at Marvel, yes. And then the first new artist to actually come at Marvel was, in fact, in 1966, and that would be Jim Steranko, right? Who was one of my favorites, and absolutely yes. He originally did work under Jack Kirby's layouts. What that means is Jack Kirby would explain the plot in pencil on the artist's page, and then almost with stick figures put where the characters should be. And Jim Steranko worked with him and Roy Thomas for the first two or three issues, and then he took over completely as both writer and artist. This was the first time Stanley let a uh, artist also write. He did a wonderful job of bringing in pop art, which was huge at the time, 
And he made it something more than just a comic book. He made it a real event, a real experience. Do you agree, Jim? Yes, absolutely. It changes and, and keeps it fresh in a very specific way. The fact that Barry brought up Thomas, let's go with that for a minute. A lot of people think that Roy Thomas was the first writer hire by Stan Lee, and that's not correct, is it, Barry? No. There were several. Larry Lieber first, who was Stan Lee's brother, was brought in. Stan Lee would give him the plot. And he actually wrote the first Iron Man, Thor, and other stories. Then there was Robert Bernstein, who was a writer for many different companies. He was brought in. And even Jerry Siegel, who was a writer for Superman in 1938, one of the creators, he was brought in. But Stanley saw that they were writing comic books the old way. What I mean the old way is that they were not character-based at all. They were plot-driven. So the writers kind of told you what the characters were doing. Stan Lee wanted to tell you in dialogue who the characters were. So slowly, Stan Lee was leaving all the other books, including Sergeant Fury, and writing all the superhero books. And that made crossovers very easy, very popular, too. So one question I do have is, in 1966, when Galactus comes out, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby released their big cosmic introduction of the Silver Surfer. Do you think that when the credits changed to a Stan and Jack masterpiece or whatever he had written, instead of the written by Stan and drawn by Jack Kirby, do you feel like that change in the way that was credited was in any way response to Ditko and Wood leaving and not wanting Kirby to leave and giving some sort of concession on credit? Well... You actually say something that has to be a little corrected. The first time he did it, the produced by was in Spider-Man 26, I believe it was, uh, the man in the crime master's mask with Ditko a year before Ditko left. And then it went over to uh, the Fantastic Four where it started saying produced by. That was an acknowledgement. And let's remember that Kirby stayed for four or five more years after that. Kirby was able to later be the writer for the Inhuman strip that was to appear that he drew. But it, uh, like we said, Steranko was the first to get it on a continuous basis. Right. The, the credit, the way it was listed, do you think he was in some way not wanting to let go of too many people and so wanted Jack happy by listing it in that way. I think he always wanted Jack and Steve to be happy. And if you read his quote of why he gave up on Spider-Man, it was to make Ditko happy. Ditko didn't like his ideas. Um, you also have to remember that both Kirby and Ditko stayed with Marvel more than they did with any other company. Ditko did have Charlton that he relied on, but I mean in terms of a continuing character, he stayed with Marvel longer than he did with any other company. And Kirby was there 10, 12 years. These guys were freelancers, and they tended to go where the money was. Do you think that credit bought Jack a few more years? I don't think so. Jack Kirby did not leave Marvel with a fight with Stan Lee. What is often forgotten is that in 1968, Marvel was bought over by Perfect Film and Chemical, and Martin Goodman had the title publisher, but he was no longer in charge. If you read Mark Evaner's book, you will see that those people, Perfect Film, never negotiated a good salary for Kirby. Kirby tried to negotiate, and they wouldn't. But Goodman wasn't there, and Stan wasn't there, 
And many people feel that Jack Kirby's work on the Fantastic Four was not great after issue 90, and they like to blame Stan Lee for that occasionally. But that's when Perfect Film and Chemical bought the company. He had no relationship with that group at all. My understanding is one of the things that led to that was uh, to soothe Kirby's feelings after the infamous 1966 New York Herald Tribune interview with Kirby and Lee, through the writer's fault, not Lee's necessarily, although my understanding is Kirby did blame Lee to some degree, that it made him look like a second banana and a bit of a stooge and that all of the genius was coming from Lee, and that that really did rankle Kirby to a great degree. And this, timing-wise, it was soon after that that this credit change took place. Barry, do you know anything about that? Well, what we know is that the Herald Tribune wrote a glowing piece about Stan Lee and made not only Jack Kirby but everyone else around him look almost obsolete, that Stan Lee was giving these orders. Roz Kirby called Stan on that. And Stan did not write the piece, but at the same time, Stan was also in a learning process. It probably took him 10 years to learn how to speak to reporters so that he brings in the fact that the artists were major contributors. It is my opinion that article set down some dominoes, and the dominoes were Kirby now, when I say now, Kirby in the early 70s going over to D.C., did not want to appear to be in the shadow of anyone. And he insisted on writing, editing, drawing his artwork. He chose his inkers and, and such. I think that article had a great effect. And if that led to the producer credit, I doubt it, because they were doing it with Ditko before that, and it was leading towards that. Anyway, I want to take exception to what you're saying, just because I knew Jack Kirby personally. I didn't, so you you did. That's a good point. No, 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 and and I'm not trying to pull rank on you because you're my god in this area. You know, (laughs) you know what I mean. I'm kidding you, but uh, I think. Kirby was a very humble man, and I don't think he wanted that. I think he wanted to uh, move his business to California for his wife's health. Marvel wasn't really helping him with that, and DC kind of allowed him to do that. And I think it was more for personal reasons than it was because he had changed his storytelling habits or that he wanted to do it all on his own. I think it had more to do with his family. I may be wrong. That's, that's what, why he moved to California. Right. But then that's when he started with Mike Royer, and he had one one inker most of the time. But at the same time, that's some of his best seminal work. It may have happened because of family reasons, but I don't think it was really him wanting to do it all by himself. I think he was the only dude in California. But I, I may be wrong. Well, we know Vince Coletta inked the first four issues of The New God uh, before it went to Royer. And to move to California, he had to borrow money from Martin Goodman. So he had a good relationship with Martin Goodman. I don't know if moving to California had anything with, to do with him going from Marvel to D.C. Something Bill brought up earlier that I wanted to ask you guys about. What is your guys' impression of Alex Toth's X-Men tryout? Jim had brought that up earlier this week as well. It's yeah. the first appearance of Juggernaut. X-Men 12. Okay, and the inks were Vince Coletta. A horrible combination. I guess Toth needed work, and he came to Marvel. But I have also learned, and this even goes for Jim Steranko, when an artist is new, 
you can't really judge him by his first comic. You got to give him three or four issues before you can say he's good or not. Uh, look how Gene Colan exploded in Daredevil after a few issues. Todd, like so many of them, had the layouts done by Jack Kirby. He did not do it himself. Well, not only that, but Toth, to his credit, was creating something called the Hanna-Barbera universe at the time, including Space Ghost, including the Galaxy Trio, the Birdman, you name it. There's about a dozen of characters, and that had... Far more of an impact on uh, kids' minds, I think, because there were more kids watching TV than they were reading comics. So I think Alex Toth, he was just venturing out into an area that he really didn't have the time for. Also, too, when Steranko did the X-Men, he told me that he had no plans to do it, but Saul Brodsky said, we're late and we need an artist for this. Can you do it? It is not impossible that they reached out to Alex Toth at a time that Marvel was expanding and said, we need someone. Alex Toth and Jack Kirby together is a horrible combination in that they, they approach it differently. There's a famous story about where Jack Kirby invited Toth over to his house for a barbecue, and they wanted to talk about how they thought they were each maybe the, the best other artists in the business, and so Kirby said, this is what I do and how I approach it. And Alex Toast said that he listened to that and he didn't understand a single word that Kirby said like he was speaking Latin. And then Toast said, this is how I approach each panel and each page. And Kirby couldn't understand anything that he said. They were so diametrically opposite of each other in terms of approach. So Toast trying to use Kirby's layouts when his own layouts are perhaps the most brilliant in the industry, it was just a, a non-starter. And so what ended up happening is redrawing a lot of Toast design where he tried to break out from Kirby, and it was just an impossible thing, and therefore Toast never went back to Marvel again, which was, again, could have changed the outlook of Marvel. Well, can I also add to the Herald Tribune thing in an unusual way, and it's getting back to Batman. In today's media where we have 150 cable stations, the computers and everything, word gets around quickly. But in 1966, there were only three network stations, CBS, NBC, and ABC. And Batman was all over the place. So we see with the Herald Tribune and the Village Voice, Stan Lee going out and trying to get as much publicity as he could for Marvel to counter this Batman wave, which was incredible. So it isn't just the Herald Tribune. There were dozens of other newspapers talking about Marvel. As we know, Steve Ditko does not seek publicity at all and hides from it. Jack Kirby will accept some, but he doesn't run towards it. Stanley became the face of Marvel in the 1960s, and he did that to draw attention to it when Batman was just all over the place. Alex, you asked earlier, how did the Batman TV show affect Marvel? That's the major way Marvel started looking for publicity and not be buried by this. Comics were sold differently. They were sold in candy stores and newsstands. DC put Batman on every comic. That meant that the dealers who had 50 different titles but only 25 places to put them, they were putting up Batman. And Stan Lee and Marvel really had to work hard to get their comics on the stands and compete. That's when Stan started doing his Excelsior, his House of Ideas. He had to compete with the Batman mentality. 
Oh, that's interesting, because I wasn't thinking there was any real solid connection, but that is one. It's competition. They're competing with Batman instead of through Batman or a character, through the persona of Stan Lee. And Stan Lee started going on shows like The Tomorrow Show. There were things where he was on The Today Show and stuff. What is really interesting is that Batman circulation then skyrocketed for the comic book. But as soon as the show ended, that circulation just dumped and, and crashed. They tried to make the Batman comic look as much like the TV show as possible. For example, they killed off Alfred a couple of years before when they gave Batman what is called his new look. And then when the TV show went on and they had Alfred in it, they brought back Alfred. Death is not fatal in comics, apparently. And Marvel circulation from 1961 to 1971, from 6 million comics a year to 60 million comics a year. Meanwhile, DC was slowly declining, and when the Batman TV show went off, the million comics a month they sold for Batman went down to like 180,000, which was not considered great at that time. When Goodman sold to Perfect Film and Chemical, they were able to use, what, a year after that or so, Curtis Circulation as a distributor. Do you think that helped amplify their circulation? No question. First, Goodman had signed a 10-year contract with independent distributors, which was owned by the parent company of DC. The first year that they were owned by Perfect Film, they were still being distributed by independent news who allowed them to expand. Why? Because Marvel was doing 60 million copies a year. They were doing really good business. They didn't want to give that up. But Goodman said he would never, ever go to his competition to distribute again, uh, partially because they controlled what he could distribute, but I think also because they saw what comics they were putting out, and he didn't want to give away his industrial secrets. So when we got the new Captain America and Iron Man comics, Submariner and Hulk, Nick Fury and Doctor Strange, those were under independent news. The other expansion that took place later definitely helped Marvel till the mid-70s when comic book sales began to decline. The Marvel Superheroes show in 1966 and the Spider-Man cartoon in 67 how does that compete with the Batman show, Barry? And how does that, in a way, almost culminate a lot of the years that the Marvel bullpen had put into creating and promoting those characters? We can't forget the Fantastic Four animated series on Hanna-Barbera, which was basically Alex Toth, who we were just talking about. Well, a major point that's important, believe it or not, is the comics code. That is, in 1954, Congress held hearings about how bad comics were. They blamed comics for juvenile delinquency, rape, and even encouraging homosexuality. Why do I bring it up? It's because TV avoided comic book heroes for 12 years after those hearings. It was the Batman TV show and its success that showed that that comics code hangover was over, and that comic book heroes could be released on TV. That's an angle I've never heard before, and it makes perfect sense, Barry. Thank you for that. The Fantastic Four and Spider-Man, of course, were aimed more towards younger readers and did help with circulation. The five-day-a-week Marvel superheroes, which featured Captain America, Iron Man, Submariner, and so on, Thor, took their stories and their artwork 
from the original comics. I have trouble sometimes calling it animated, if you ever saw it, because it looks just like cutouts moving. Um, and Barry, do you know who did most of the animation? It was actually Mike Royer. That's where Mike kind of got his start with Marvel, and, of course, he would revisit it when Ink and Kirby at Marvel in the mid-'70s. That put the Marvel name out there and also made parents aware of it. I know this sounds funny, but when I had the measles, my mother went to the candy store and picked out comics for me. What did she pick out at that time? Superman and Batman, because that's what she knew. So when you are on TV, you kind of let the parents know that these are familiar characters. And when they picked out comics for their kids, they now knew Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four and such. Well, guys, it's time for our Lightning Lad round, and that is basically where we go around all four of us, and we have one minute to rant about what we're thinking about comics this week. May have something to do with today, may not. So we're going to start with Alex. Alex, what are you thinking this week? You know, one of the things I've been going over this week is the effects of the action heroes from the 1920s and 1930s, like Douglas Fairbanks and Errol Flynn, and their effects on the early golden age of comic books, how those artists or writers, they were reading pulps and studying technique from the newspaper comic strips, but they were also watching those old movies, and the action and the charisma of those actors in those movies back then certainly did impact some of the stories and art of those golden age stories. That's awesome. Now, Barry, what do you have to say for a minute? I'm disappointed in today's comics. I don't enjoy them, and I have seen that they're no longer drawn on paper. They're drawn on computer, and they're often automatically inked on the computer and colored. And even though technically in our era there were less colors to use, there were more gradations of color and, and such, um, and I'm just seeing that so much of the, today's artwork loses the individuality of uh, the artist and is more Photoshop, if I can say that, than anything else. That's a shame, and I do understand what you mean by that, because I have a friend who's a colorist now for all of Marvel's Deadpool books, and he often runs on about how amazing it is that the artists aren't what they used to be. I have to agree with you. Now we come to Jim Thompson. Jim, what do you have to rant about this week? In preparing for anything like this, it's it's fun to start doing your research and come across facts that you've never heard before. And one that I came across this week was that Mario Puzo actually planned on working for Marvel Comics around this period while he was working on his novel, which turned out to be Godfather. They gave him a big stack of Marvel books. He went through them, and then he wrote back to Goodman, and he said, it's too complicated. This would take up too much of my time. I will just do some pulp writing for your, your magazines and your periodicals, but the comics are too, are too difficult for me to do. That's an absolute true story. That, that's like an epiphany to me, Jim. These are the things you learn on the Comic Book Historians Podcast. I'm just here to tell you. I'm Bill Field. I have a rant this week, and my rant is an anti-rant in a sense, because I'm upset that everybody got upset about the Inhumans TV series before they watched it, and now it's absolutely phenomenal to me. I love it. I'm hooked. I think it's great. I know I'm, I may be the only one here. I may not. 
But uh, I think Lockjaw is completely awesome. I think all the characters are perfect to what they are. I'm surprised that they shaved Medusa's hair off in the second episode, but it's turned it's turned out to be you get to see who she is, and the character on screen is exactly like the comic book version. So I'm going to throw one more rant in, but New Mutants went down this week with a trailer, and they're coming out with a horror movie. What do you guys think of that? Is it skipping genres, or is it okay, or... Since New Mutants was always dark, is that something that, you know, bleeds into it? I, I want to hear what you guys have to say. Everybody is giving uh, New Mutants like a, a total thumbs up, uh, whether they're comic people or horror people or whatever. Alex, have you seen the trailer? I love the trailer. I was really excited about Bill Sankiewicz's covers and the Bear Saga with Danny Moonstar. I think that they are approaching... It, like those comics, where they were almost visually eerie, visually threatening, where you don't have that cozy protection of Professor X to protect them from all the world's evils, and the uncertainty of being a teenager, a mutant, with the entire world and all the bad spirits out there out to get you, which is what I got from those Bill Sinkowitz New Mutant stories. That's what I'm getting from the trailer. I can't wait to watch it. I just wanted to say in terms of the comment about horror... Um, I think the difference in some ways between the Marvel movies and the DC movies are that the successful Marvel movies always do hybrids. That's why, they, that's why they're doing so well is because they will do a superhero heist movie or a superhero spy thriller of the 70s style or a superhero fantasy. And so doing a superhero horror makes perfect sense. DC just tries to bring superhero films into a more realistic setting and do that without any backdrop of another genre. And I think that's that's the difference and the failure. That's why I liked Logan so much, because Logan was more like a Western film. And Ant-Man was your heist movie. Alex gave a clue to it, though, when he mentioned Western. This is following the exact same pattern that the Western did in the 50s into the 60s, where they were the predominant film as well, especially with the Ford and Hawks films. And then they caught on to television, and they took over television almost completely. Right, it was right. something like 70% of shows at one point were, were Western. 1958, yeah. 1959. Yeah. That's exactly wow. right. And then... At that point, to compete with the Westerns on television, they have to become even more sophisticated and more adult-driven. And we saw this with Deadpool, and we're seeing this with Logan. And in order to distinguish from the television product, they become something else. It can't sustain itself under those. There will be a glut on television. We're watching it now. And in a few years, it's got to move on to something else, the same way that detective shows had their glut and then moved on. Westerns, um, most like the comics, uh, superhero ones. I think it's the same pattern. You feel that we're in another 1966 right now, Jim? We are. I agree. You're bringing up a very good point, Jim that detective movies, Maltese Falcon and stuff, was very right. popular, and they got adapted to TV. Movie musicals were incredibly popular, and on first glance you'd say they didn't make it to TV as original shows, but they had variety shows with the singers and dancers exactly. got up and sang and danced. That's yep. a very good point, that we might not lose it on television as much, but the, there'll be a time where there'll only be two or three of these movies coming out a year. 
as we bring this episode to a close, I want to say it's been an esteemed honor to be with you guys today and to talk about these things that people have not even thought about in the directions that we push them and push them hard. I'm kidding. But I want to thank Jim, I want to thank Jim Thompson. I want to thank Alex Grand and I want to most of all thank our special guest today, the inimitable Barry Pearl. Barry, thanks Barry. Thanks for being well, let me just say one thing that I like to say, and that is God might have wanted to have the Justice League, but he took Christopher Reeve and Adam West, and he'll just have to settle for the world's finest. I love that. And ladies and gentlemen, this brings to an end the Comic Book Historian Podcast, and I am your host, Bill Field. Seven, six, five, three, two, one. Let's throw in four also. <laughs> Thank you, Alex. <laughs> I'll add four on the end. <laughs> we need some laughter in this episode.